Welcome to Press Room on Radio Town. Presented by Garrard's Horse and Hound. Making shopping easier with their online store. The same extensive catalogue, the same king prices online or over the phone. 1-800-060-896 or visit horseandhound.com.au. Good morning, everyone. This is Press Room, Monday, October 16. Thanks for your company. Big show coming up over the next hour. Ben Dorry's not far away. He's waiting on the line. We've got a bit to discuss there. Want to profile a few horses with Ray Thomas, get his thoughts on the weekend of racing. You know, Queensland nearly pulled off a big double on the weekend in, in terms of harness racing and greyhounds. We did it in the greyhounds. We just missed out on the harness. For that reason, I'm going to touch base with Chris Barsby and John Brash in the middle of the program. Ben Scadden and Colin McNiff, of course, join us later to discuss all news in South Australia and Tasmania. Your input is important, it always is. Text me at 499 putter. 0499-786-837. Let me know what you think. If you've got some news or views, disagree, agree, you know the drill. And you can tweet me, of course, at Radio Tab Oz. The podcast, it's out each week. Go to the link at Radio Tab Oz or search under or search under Spotify. We'll start again. Go to Spotify and search under Radio Tab. Press room each and every Monday, brought to you with the compliments of Garrard's Horse and Hound. Well, the point of consumption tax in the racing industry was raised by our, our press room panellist, Ben Dorries, in an interview with professional partner Kingsley Bartholomew on the Racenet website late last week. Bartholomew joined what is becoming a long line of those who profess the POC tax is ultimately harming wagering in Australia. They claim this relatively new tax applied to betting agencies will ultimately see the putter paying the price through higher betting percentages, read shorter odds, and reduced inducements. In a foreboding conclusion, they believe this could actually drive some putters away from racing to other betting pursuits. Some years ago, this argument didn't wash at all with me, but as the years have passed, I've had to concede the, the they. They can't all be wrong. They're intelligent men and, and intelligent women. But I still think it's overplayed. First and foremost, the point of consumption tax has been a financial lifeline to the racing industry, whatever code, whatever state, and whatever financial position they find themselves in. Increased prize money levels are a direct result of this tax. Bartholomew believes the recreational putter, as he terms it, is not getting as good a bang for his or her buck because instead of a horse or a dog being at $5, it's now $4.60 as prices are trimmed up and the price percentage on the race increases. So instead of getting two fifty, the putter's getting back two thirty or two twenty. But this is where my overplayed argument gets its run. Firstly, many if not most recreational putters don't frame markets and wouldn't know or maybe even care if the price is $4.60 or $5. They like it, they bet. And if I asked seven or eight of those recreational putters what was the current percentage of the race, they simply wouldn't know. This means nothing to them and never will. But while Bartholomew concedes this, there are two points worth addressing. A dip in wagering turnover across the board may not solely be a result of these shorter prices or less inducements, but a consequence of a cost of living crisis that currently exists. It's pretty simple. The putting bag once might have been 200, it's now 150. That covers a large demographic which consider putting a, a recreation, to use Bartholomew's words again. And I also think they overthink it or overplay it, they're my words, because they're analysing it through their, their knowledge eyes. Do they actually know what a recreational putter thinks or does? 
I doubt it. To conclude, I, I get there is validity in their argument, but it's not the one and only excuse to offer. You're listening to Press Room on Radio Tab. Ben Dorries with us now. Ben, good morning. Yeah, good morning, David. A few things to discuss and probably issues actually away from the racetrack, just some, some broader topics. And we'll, we'll touch firstly on my opening remarks this morning. You wrote this story last week, and it has to be acknowledged right from the get-go a few things here. Kingsley Bartholomew is a very successful man in his profession and very well-respected, very well-known. And I get the article that, that, that he sees uh, a potential red light with a point of consumption tax if governments can consider or contemplate rising it further. But do you, do you get my point of what I've said this morning? Oh, yeah, I get some of it, David. Um, but I, I guess I sort of... I mean, there's, smart, there's a lot smarter people than me in this space. Uh, and heaven forbid, there might be smarter people than you in this space too. There and are. I just think... I just think Kingsley Bartholomew, who I have had nothing to do with, there's, there's no friendship there or anything, I just rang him up because arguably he's Australia's biggest punter, or if not very close to it, uh, just to discuss some issues in wagering. And, and look, he made it very clear that some of this stuff it doesn't apply to him as a professional punter. So he, he, it's not like he's talking with a vested interest. Uh, he, he's talking, I suppose, on behalf of the recreational punter. And your point's well made that recreational punters, yeah, they have no idea about point of consumption taxes or, or, or takeouts, you know, bookies takeouts or anything like that. that. That's 100% and he conceded that. But he just said, look, the, the recreational punter may not know any of that, but what he does know, or, or she does know, is that say they had a $200 punting bank now five years ago, they might be able to, to sort of you know, get three or four hours or heaven forbid they might win and, and go the whole day with it. Whereas now... Uh, a lot of them are finding, um, you know, they might be cast after four or five races. And his explanation for that is because every time you back a winner, um, due to these government taxes, you're not getting as much money back. So his point was sort of, well, well look, you can go to a casino with two or $300 and you could probably spend the whole afternoon there. Whereas quite often that's not the case, uh, you, you know, with sort of punting on the horses or the dogs. Now, it's a complicated argument, isn't it? Because uh, a lot of racing bodies... You know, clearly do like point of consumption taxes because more money, as you rightly pointed out, flows back to the industry uh, through prize money and other things, you know, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but look, I just think wagering, uh, whether it's wagering turnover, whether it's a, a chat we're having like this, it's a good topic to debate wherever you sit on it because I do think that this is going to be one of the real press button issues of, of the industry we love for the next two or three years because we saw those rivers of gold, didn't we, flowing into the, the bookies' coffers through COVID, when, when large areas of Australia were locked down and, you know, let's face it, people didn't have much else to do apart from, you know, have a bet mm. that attracted a lot of new customers. So that's dropped off. But the alarming thing is really uh, that my information is that, um, you know, if we go back to pre-COVID 2019, the levels, you know, across the board pretty much, if you average it out, they haven't risen. Wagering hasn't risen risen since then. So, look, yeah, there's many reasons for that, as you rightly point out. Point of consumption taxes, I would suggest, is probably one of them. Uh, there are other factors. But, look, I think it's a good, healthy debate to have because I just don't think we can close our eyes and think that everything's hunky-dory because the next 18 months, two years, three years could be some of the most important in racing's history, I think. I'll be surprised if any state government within the, the short term 
raises the point of consumption tax further. I think uh, a level has been found. Uh, that remains to be seen, but I, I think that's the case. Um, but, but, but certainly, um, you know, we, we use the term glibly, cost of living crisis, I get that, but good point to make. On Saturday when I arrived at the races, I spoke to John Felicita, I ran into John Felicita, and those who don't know John, he's the head chef uh, at the BRC meetings. I just, as a conversation starter, I said, you know, how are your bookings for today? How are your bookings for Melbourne Cup Day? He said, they're going okay. He said, but I've noticed over the last six months or so, that, and, and they keep records, they know, you know, people are, are repeat customers. They might have taken the 200 package, now they take the 150 package. Now, that's from his mouth. So I'm sure in some degrees it applies to to recreational putters and their putting back as well. And I think that has to certainly be, you know, uh, established as a key factor in this this wagering dip at the moment. I'm sure, I'm sure you'd agree with that. Oh, 100%. Totally agree with everything you've just said. And look, the other factor con- to consider as well is that, you know, the great Australian dream of buying a house. Now, I know people get paid more on a general basis than they did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. You know, inflation's gone up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But... I mean, when I grew up, I mean, everyone could sort of put down a deposit and, and get a house. I mean, now to, to get a half-decent house that doesn't fall to bits, you're looking at you know, 800000 or, or, or more in, in most suburbs. So, you know, and, you, and you're looking at a significant, you know, if you don't want to pay mortgage insurance, a 20% deposit, that's $160,000 if you don't mind for an $800,000 house. I mean, an $800,000 house 20 years ago, you would have thought you'd be living in a half, half a mansion, but but not anymore. So... In other words, my point is exactly your point, that people have just got other things to, to save and spend their money on uh, and, and tighten the belt a bit. So, yes, you're right. There's a lot of factors at play, but I think it's a healthy discussion, whether it's Kingsley Bartholomew mm. uh, or anyone to have. One thing I am privately told is that um, racing ministers in various states privately concede uh, that the point of consumption taxes in their particular states they may have gone a bit over the top. They may be a bit too high. Mm. So I think your, your remarks are exactly right. We won't be seeing any more rise, tax rises that will be impacting bookies anytime soon, David, which is a good thing. Now, I read your article, re the Saturday race day, which anyone um, would concede was a wonderful race day, the, the, the Tab Everest at Royal Rambic and Caulfield Guineas Day at Caulfield. And you were comparing that day, and, and you you did make the comparison to the Melbourne Cup. And I was going to take you to task, but I think I read that article on Saturday night when I might have had a few too many champagnes, <laughs> and I've had to read it again. But I'm going to say this to you, right? I, I still think this... I, I think your premise is wrong. Uh, I think you're comparing apples with oranges. Just let me explain, and then, then you've got the floor. No doubt, there is no doubt, and I, anyone would concede this, that what we saw on Saturday, that's a better race day overall, race day, than Melbourne Cup Day, which only has the one race. We've got the big dance in Sydney too, which we shouldn't forget, but Melbourne Cup is the standout race that day. The undercard is is basically just, just you know, always bread and butter races. But the point I'll make, and here's where I'm interested in your thoughts, it captured a lot of eyes on Saturday, whether it was uh, being at the track or at other tracks or free-to-air television or Sky or Racing.com. But Melbourne Cup Day creates a far stronger national attention than what Saturday did or ever will. Do you agree with that or not? Uh, I would have once upon a time. Now, I'm not so sure. I'll give you some 
just some anecdotal evidence. I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if I'd have gotten a taxi, uh, you know, at any point in the spring carnival, all the taxi driver wanted to talk about was what do you like in the Melbourne Cup? Uh, do we like this thing? He'd have his form guide at the ready. Uh, that That is not in play anymore. I have not had a discussion like that with a taxi driver or an Uber driver for probably 15 years. Uh, the other point is... Uh, we used to have real hero horses a lot of the time racing in the Melbourne Cup that we knew and we, we followed their progress through Caulfield Cups. We knew their trainers. We knew their jockeys. We knew their set path. I mean, now we see a lot of anonymous horses that we we don't know. We struggle to follow. They come from overseas. They have one run here. They're, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, the other thing I would suggest too is when I was a kid, uh, I could and virtually all my schoolmates could rattle off the last 10 or 15 winners of the Melbourne Cup in chronological order, if you don't mind. That's what a big occasion it was. I guarantee you, if I went to any school in south-east Queensland or, in fact, Australia, I might be able to find one kid, I reckon, that could rattle off the last 10 Melbourne Cup winners. So my point is uh, simply, yes, it's still a great race. Is it the race it was? I don't think so. Uh, I think a lot more people... um, certainly recognised uh, the horses, recognised the trainers, recognised um, yeah, the Sweet Caroline tunes that were playing, blaring out on Everest Day. Oh, look, I'm not knocking the Melbourne Cup. Uh, well, I suppose I am, but I'm not, I'm not... It still has its place. But I just think, um, as a spectacle, yeah, the Melbourne Cup's got its, you know, 10 minutes before, after, during the race. Then everyone tunes out. And a lot of the time... We never see or hear from the horse that won the Melbourne Cup again. Yes, there's a lot of good storylines, but I just think for for, for mine, uh, I just fell in love with, with, you know, Caulfield Guineas Everest Day. I think Cox Plate Day is another ripping day. I just think there's other days, personally, and this is just my opinion, that have overtaken Melbourne Cup, in, certainly in terms of my interest, and I reckon a lot of younger people in Australia as well. Not that I'm young, David, but certainly amongst no. the younger population. Well, I'm certainly not young. I'm, I'm, I'm a decade down the track from you. I'm just, just I, I think again we're coming from different angles here. I'm just saying that what we saw on Saturday was wonderful, and 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 no one can argue with that. What I'm saying is Melbourne Cup Day, Melbourne Cup Day, still holds its its uh, still holds that national attraction. I mean, it's an old term. It's, it's always been the race that stops a nation. I think it does. I don't think Saturday stopped a nation. One yeah, more I don't point. Think, I, don't, I don't think the Melbourne Cup does stop a nation anymore. It well, I think it segments does. of a nation. It definitely stops Victoria. I mean, there's a public holiday in Victoria. Oh, gee. Uh, Look, I, I, think, I think anyone listening this morning, I'm interested in your thoughts, so, so email us. Don't you wake up on Melbourne Cup Day and it feels a different day? And, and you know, people have, hardly turn their attention to work or they might do a half day. There's parties everywhere at clubs and hotels and restaurants and racetracks right around Australia filled with people. I think Melbourne Cup Day has a stronger appeal or has a stronger uh, national attention than what Saturday did. And that's not knocking Saturday. So, again, to finish it, I think we're coming probably from different angles. I think we'll come from the same angle here before we go. Ray Thomas is on the line. Bailey Wheel has been stood down for a month by... Annabelle Neesham, uh, who's uh, Bailey's under her care at the moment. Uh, he said several other stable he's been with. Um, behavioural issues is probably the kindest way to describe it, but I give Annabelle full marks for taking a strong stand here where many other trainers may not have because we know this young man has a lot of riding ability. Yeah, good, strong um, decision here from Annabelle Neesham to stand Bailey Wheeler down for a month. He was uh, basically late or didn't turn up for work. 
uh, last Monday, the Monday after the Racing uh, Queensland Awards. Now, look, he's just he's a young fellow. We all know that. Everyone's entitled to make a mistake, uh, especially when you're a kid. I get that. But already we're seeing a history with this young fella. Uh, Chris Anderson moved him on. Uh, there's been some other uh, little bits and pieces, uh, you know, at other stables. He's got all the talent in the world, uh, but there are a lot of young jockeys that we see with all the talent in the world. That they're, they're, you know, they 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 hit the headlines and then they fade out uh, because they're not. They don't put their heads down. They're not driven. Uh, they get consumed by other things. So look, uh, I hope Bailey Wheeler um, gets to work, puts his head down, makes the most of his opportunities because he is a terrifically talented. Uh, young rider, seems a polite young fella to talk to, um, but clearly there's some off-the-track issues that he needs to get on top of, and we wish him all the best, but good, strong decision from Annabelle Nisham here, I think, David. The text has just come through. One line, can the same kids rattle off the last five Everest winners? Obviously, that's posed to you. I reckon they could. Well, I reckon they could certainly... Well, maybe not the last five, but they could certainly name a few of them. Uh, Can you name the last ten Melbourne Cup winners, David? No, not at this very can moment. You like, can, you, can you name the last five Everest winners? Yeah, I can do that. Well, there you go. I'll I win. can do that. Hey, I'll, win, uh, I'll win this argument. And, 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 and also, one further one. Rosie, you're impatient a minute. Uh, Tony from Bowen Hills, he's on your team. After we finished off, when well, we came off air yesterday, and you'd gone. I was just doing some work in the studio. Tony from Bowen Hills, he'll be listening this morning. He said, can you get Ben's tips today? I felt like replying and saying, do you really want to go down this path? <laughs> do you know where you're headed, Tony from Bowen Hills? Uh, well, I, I do actually have one for you. Have you got, have well, you got one minute for me to look it up? Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is going to take a minute. It's on, uh, it's on Caulfield Wednesday. Stand yeah. by. I've almost got it up here. Magic Millions debutant stakes, full of first starters. A Mick yep. Price. Michael Kent, first settler. You might find one Irishman by the name of Noel Greenhale in the ownership of this cult and a lot of heavy hitters, uh, Rupert Lee, uh, Long, Jerry Harvey. So put that one down in your black book. First settler, first starter at Caulfield on Wednesday. No prices up yet, but I'll be interested to see what price it does go up. First settler. Good on you, mate. Thanks, mate. Bye. There is uh, um, Ben Dorries. Is Ray still there? I hope he's not angry. Good morning, Ray. <laughs> Never angry. Good morning, David. Good morning, everyone. I don't think you are ever angry either. Uh, wasted emotion, I think, anger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so no point being angry in life. Got to, got to get on with it, mate. So. Ben and I were having a conversation, and uh, just before... I go into this, uh, I want to profile five horses with you. But before we do that, Ben and I were just having a conversation. I think we were coming from different points of view. What I was trying to say was, I'm not comparing the race days, because if you do... Mm-hmm you'll come up with Saturday as a better race day for racing people than the, than the Melbourne Cup day meeting because the Melbourne Cup's the only race. I'm just talking about in terms of involvement and engagement and, you know, full credit to what the Everest is doing. I mean, it's only been going, what, eight years? I mean, the Melbourne Cup's been going over a century. And yeah. to combine with this this Caulfield meeting, I think, is, is great for the racing industry. and It's reflected in turnover and crowds and the like. But Melbourne Cup Day, the actual vibe of the day, is still pretty hard to beat, isn't it? It, it is, and I think it is the race that still stops most of the nation. If, I don't think it stops the entire nation any longer. I heard Ben's point, but it certainly stops a lot of us. Um, but the, the gap is closing, David. Mm. I'm certain of that. And, uh, and 
just for example, um, my daughter and her husband went to the races last Saturday for the first time in their lives. Uh, they had no interest in horse racing at all. They wanted to go to the Everest and they had the time of their lives and already my daughter's asking about next year, can we go back? I don't know when I'm going to get the tickets, but uh, I, that's just an isolated case, I know. But there are so many instances like that and... Um, look, the traditionalists and you and I always has the Melbourne Cup on the pinnacle, I know, but the Everest in its short history has made an extraordinary impact and the gap is closing in terms of um, uh, all the parameters that you use to measure a race and its, its effectiveness and its impact across the nation. So it's quite an extraordinary impact that the Everest has had. Certainly has. I think you're spot on there. I mean, considering it's only had, uh, you know, eight... eight um, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, let's talk about five horses. And the first mm-hmm. one's a no-brainer, the, the Everest winner, think about it. Now, I was having a chat with Bruce McAvaney yesterday and I sort of got into my head, because Think About It won the Everest, that I was thinking that, that such as the presence of this race and such as its, its, its um, appeal and, and strength... Mm-hmm. To think about it may become something he's not. He may become a sprinter instead of what you know many would have thought he might have been a fourteen hundred metre horse or a miler. Bruce made the point to me yesterday. He said, "I think Joe will will go down the path of extending his distance." And that was backed up by your colleague Mitch Cohen this morning. You can read the story on RaceNet. That Joe's got quite uh, quite ambitious plans. I suppose ambitious is the wrong word because the horse has only been beaten once. But he's looking at an autumn where he could even extend out to the Queen Elizabeth. So there's no. Uh, no stopping thing about it going up in distance. No, and we had Joe on Sydney Radio yesterday morning and that was the point he, he raised in that as good as, as this horse is as a sprinter and he's absolutely world-class. He showed it on Saturday. For all intents and purposes, he's probably more a miler, isn't he, David? Yeah. And so already in the back of Joe's mind is the rider stakes. He would love to have a go at a Doncaster with this horse if he wasn't weighted out of a Doncaster, and I don't think he will be, and then potentially going to the Queen's mistakes at 2,000 metres. So um, you can understand where Joe is coming from because this horse is by think about it. He's quite stoutly bred when you go through his breeding, but he's just an exceptional racehorse, and his versatility is quite amazing as he's demonstrated again to win an Everest. Um, look, who knows, but at this stage... I would dare say next year we won't see think about it in Everest. I think he'll go back towards those mile middle distance races. But um, it's 12 months is a long time and uh, he was so good in the Everest. And at least Joe Pride has those options to consider. If you think about a horse like Private Eye, he, he thought similarly about Private Eye, but then realised that Private Eye essentially was a sprinter. So he's brought that horse back as an older horse sprinting um, primarily so it, it, we'll just wait and see where the dust settles to think about it but gee he has so many options doesn't he yeah and I suppose he could certainly embark down that course during the autumn there's no reason why that he can't go for a break and be prepared for, for an Everest right. first up because you've yeah. got to start somewhere haven't you and why not start a 20 million dollar race a really good point, and he could go fresh up or second up like he did on Saturday. But um, it's a great position to be in, and what a horse, David. Like he only been beaten the once. He's um, won nine races this year, and to think he started off, you know, benchmark 72 at Warwick Farm in a, a minor meeting in late January. Um, who would have thought that day we were going to see a dual group one winner, indeed the Stradbroke winner, and eventually the Everest winner? You just never know 
where that next champion's coming from in racing, do you? I reckon Manicato got beaten at his first start. There always used to be a trivia question, who was the horse who beat Manicato? I might be wrong there, but... I reckon he got start... beaten his second start, David. I reckon he got beaten his second... He won his first start, and yeah. he got beaten his second start up the straight by memory, but then away he went, so... Um, I can't it, remember it, the horse who beat him. It could well become a trivia question, who was the horse that beat Think About It? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So quite amazing, but gee, some horses, isn't he? And uh, great scenes here on, on Saturday, and what a training feat by Joe Pride to get first and third... And I know this point's been stated many times, but it, just to emphasise, we're all a chance in racing. Think about it, cost $70,000, privatised 62500 They are modest sums mm. in this era of, of uh, million-dollar-plus ceilings, which are just commonplace nowadays. We have to mark Fangirl very highly. Not only did she win her third Group 1 and the, the King Charles Third. She outpointed Mr. Brightside pretty comprehensively, and we know how well he's been going because he's been outpointing Alligator Blood. So, so she she reaches a high level here, Fangirl. My question to you is, will she go to a Cox Plate? Uh, and I suppose the strongest consideration Chris Waller has to give is, will she get a, a tough two thousand and forty meters? That's the one question mark in his mind, and uh, I did get a chance to talk to him after the last race on Saturday and just get his final thoughts. And he said it'll come down to, in his words, I need to check the distance because that's in the back of his mind about Fangirl's ability to run a very, very strong 2,000. But I guess the results on Saturday have turned a lot of things on their head, haven't they, David? We've got Amelia's Jewel being beaten. We've got um, Mr Brightside being comprehensively beaten by Fangirl, as you pointed out. Her sectionals and her finishing speed in the King Charles... Um, gee, I've watched that race a few times and the more you watch it, the more impressive it becomes, David. And and in Chris's words, as good as she was last year and she ran a number of Group 1 placings without winning to horses like Anime, he's adamant she's better again this year because finally she's fully matured and developed and I think we saw evidence of that. That was an exceptional performance to win the King Charles. Yeah, she's not overly raced. She's only had the 21 starts. And, of course, a few, a few blots on the comic book were, were due to, to heavy tracks as well. So, mm. and, the, and the other option, of course, if there's no Cox Plate at the race, like the, the invitation would be an ideal race, would it not? Uh, yeah, I dare say. Got to come back a little bit and trip. And then you've got the, the Champions Day as well. So, yeah. so versatile. And, and the key, you just raised that very important point. She needs dry tracks. Um, she can get through... Um, uh, slow tracks but it takes away from her finishing speed on top of the ground as we saw on Saturday she's come home almost in sub 33 and put two and a half lengths on Mr Brightside and that's where she's at her best on firm ground around a mile can she stretch that to 2000 metres for the Cox Plate we'll find out in a couple of weeks I always think it gives a feature race uh, an extra tick when the, the defending champion can win it and that's what Front Page did isn't he a marvellous horse as well? Talk about being lightly raced. Obviously, he's had his fair share of issues along the way, but mm. totally dominant in the Kosciuszko. And great scenes. He had a great story with Matthew Dale now, the new trainer, but Jeff Giray there on Saturday. It was great to see him there. Yeah, it was, of course. He retired after front page, won the Kosciuszko last year, and as you said, Maydale took over the training of front page. One minute, 8.04, leading from start to finish, carrying top weight and absolutely blowing the field away. It was a, an exceptional performance by a really talented horse. I'm not sure if you're aware, 
day, but he actually pulled up three out of five laymen mm. in the four post race. So, as you mentioned earlier, this, this horse has had his issues, but great training performance by Matt. They rolled the dice and went in first up with front page. So, obviously, uh, his little fitness issues and injury issues are, are a concern, but a tremendous training performance by Matt. Great to see Jeff there as as an owner in, in this instance rather than as a trainer. Uh, getting back-to-back Kosciuszko's great ride, Tyler Schiller. And I come back to that time, 1 minute 8.04. That's an elite gallop around the Randwick 1200. Times were razor sharp on that track on Saturday. I think anything that made mm-hmm. ground uh, did really well and far too easy falls into that category. Um, yeah. Land legend, James Ferguson, brought him here to win the, the St. Ledger. Did that. Very good ride by Tyler Schiller. An exciting race to start the day. What happens now? Am I right in saying Land Legend goes to Chris Waller? Is that correct? He does, whether he goes immediately. But the long-term plan is he'll stay in Sydney and be trained by Chris Waller. And and he's an exciting stayer. He's very lightly raced, isn't he, um, David? And, and he was exceptional on Saturday. And I spoke to Tyler after the race. He'd never ridden for an English trainer before. So he wasn't sure what to expect um, in terms of tactics, etc. but he was told just let the horse run at his, his gallop and his rhythm. So hence Tyler sensed the speed was dropping off fairly early in the contest, so he just let Land Legend slide forward and it was a brilliant tactical move because, as he told me post-race, I didn't have to urge the horse forward. He did it under his own steam, so to speak, went to the front, and that's the best way to ride these English horses. Mm. They're trained to the gather momentum and rather than sit and sprint, they just continue to surge and they build their revs through a race, which is what he did. Cleveland came up alongside and momentarily I thought, well, he'll get the better of this horse, but he just fought fought him off and drove away from the favourite and won convincingly by two and three quarter lengths and great ride Tyler Schiller. And for a young stayer, so lightly raced with so much upside, we might see be hearing a bit more about Land Legend. Uh, he might be a Sydney Cup horse in autumn. Yeah, will there, be, will there be another target race during the spring, though? Uh, there's not much in Sydney for him. I guess he could go down maybe for Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Flemington, which would yeah. potentially qualify him for the Cups next year. That mm. could um, possibly be the, the plan of attack, even a Sandown um, Cup post the Carnival over 3,200, because this horse will stay all day, as he showed in the St. Ledger. He was just getting warmed up the last 200, and he didn't break gallop at all. He continually surged through the line. So a lot of upside for horses, obviously a natural stayer, and was very impressive in the St. Ledger. The last of our quintet, and we'll discuss this fairly quickly, Militarise was the favourite in the Caulfield Guineas. I'm going to be f- very forgiving on two counts. One, an awkward start. He probably was going to be back there anyway, but it didn't help matters. But then the tempo of the race was slow. I think they ran just a tick under 138 for the mile. I thought he did really well, and I'd be happy to see him at a Cox Plate. And the, as of this morning, I was talking to Connections, definitely the plan to press on because of those reasons you mentioned, really, the, the call for games. It just, it just went awry from him from the start when he was slightly slow away, got shuffled back, was with the tail enders and when the race developed into a sprint home, um, he was in a position where he couldn't possibly win the contest. Uh, the best part of his race, David, wasn't it? It was the last probably 200 metres when he started to really eat into the ground to get up and run fifth. Uh, Griff had the um, cross from the outside, Barry got on the fence, found the 
tempo to suit was too good, but militarised, excellent run. And as we speak this morning, definitely pressing on to the Cox Plate. Big question mark, though, who will ride? Because you'll have 49.5 by memory, and it's Joe Muriel can't make that weight, won't be here for the Cox Plate day anyway. And so Chris Waller currently considering his options to be the rider of militarise in the Cox Plate. Good to talk, Ray. Chat next week. Thanks so much, David. Ray Thomas, the racing editor of the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph. Morning, David and Ben. Melbourne Cup Day still has the aura of stopping the nation. It's our national race day, and I understand the horses are not as recognised. However, it still stops the nation. Cheers, Dave. Ben will probably think I'm writing to myself. Bob from Adelaide says, let's wait till think about it races down the Flemington Strait without interference. I suppose that's a wrap there. A little hard to, to decipher. Let's uh, change codes. Let's go to the final stages of the Victoria Cup at Melton on Saturday night. This was one hell of a finish. Turning for home, Rock and Roll 2 in front. Leap to Fame still coming. It's Rock and Roll 2. Leap to Fame the outside. Rock and Roll 2. Leap to Fame. Act now over the top. Rock and Roll 2 grabbed by Act now out wide. Act now. In an upset, Act now's won it. From Leap to Fame, Rock and Roll 2. Catch a wave was flying and close up Mac Dan Spirit of St. Louis. What a finish. It certainly was. Heads and noses separating five or six runners. Chris Barsby's joining us on Press Room. Chris, good morning. David, good morning to you. Good morning, everyone. Dan Malecki needed five sets of eyes there. It was one, one hell of a finish, as I said. Yeah, no doubt about that, David. Only nine metres or just over nine metres separating first to last. And I suppose... There was a lot of good runs, none more so than the Queensland leap to fame. The two disappointments coming out of that race on Saturday night were the leader and defending champ, Rock and Roll Do. He had his chance out in front. And the horse that sat behind him, Better Eclipse, the Kilmore Cup winner, he was disappointing, finishing at the tail of the field. But everything else performed really well. Uh, the winner was terrific, coming from a long way back. The runner-up was absolutely fantastic. Mm. And the third horse was great. And... You know, I don't want to sound like an apologist, but uh, he was terrific. But that's the third straight big race defeat that he's now suffered. And I, I'm, I'm certain racing Queensland would have felt a little uneasy after the race. They would have been hoping for a victory, given that ID23 is only weeks away. But it leaves them in a fairly precarious position because... He would have been their poster boy and still remains their poster boy for ID23. But the fact of the matter is that's his third straight big race defeat off the back of the Blacks of Fake during the Constellations, the Tab Eureka, the world's richest race in September, and now the Victoria Cup. So where does that leave Leap to Fame heading into ID23, which starts officially on December 1? Yeah, that's only uh, just under seven weeks away. Well, where it leaves him, certainly market-wise, is still at the top of the tree. He's $2.25 on, on tab fixed uh, to win the Inter-Dominion Grand Final on December 16. That seems awfully short to me. So mm. what I'll put to you is this regarding the Victoria Cup. And my rule of thumb is often bunch finishes can mean the format of the race mightn't be strong. But you've just outlined a few of the performances there. Whilst it was a blanket finish, most of these have gone... Well, several of these have gone really, really well. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, so, as I said, the, the two horses that were disappointing out of the race were the leader, Rock and Roll Do, and the horse that sat behind him, Better Eclipse. So, 
what does this mean? I'm, I'm certain it probably gives Emma Stewart, Clayton Tonkin that little bit of a, a spring in their step. They've got a lot of horses nominated for the Victoria Cup. The fact that they've been able to beat Leap to Fame again because it was that same combination that uh, were able to uh, get over the top of Leap to Fame in the Eureka within Cypher. So that probably means that we're going to see Team Stewart here for ID23. And it probably it probably means for ID23 that those that were on the borderline, whether they're going to come or not, the fact that he's been beaten again, Leap to Fame, in a big race, it probably gives them uh, every opportunity to make the trip to come north and tackle this series. Um, so he's not invincible, um, and that's been proven now with those three big race defeats. But I think it underlines a lot of other things as well. It's so hard. He was looking to become the first horse since Lazarus to win the Victoria Derby and then return the following year and win the Victoria Cup. So it's not easy going from age group racing to open class racing. You've got to be super in many, many ways. So, But in, in saying that, I think it sort of underlines how, how much this has changed. And I'll pose this question to you, David. Of the three racing codes, Thoroughbreds, Harness and Greyhounds, is it the Harness Code that has evolved and changed the most? Well, um, the, the KPIs, I su- suppose, you have to, to to think about. The the one just off the top of my head would be times. Mm. Uh, you know, I can remember when I started in the media, it's over 40 years ago, a two-minute mile rate was, was um, a benchmark. Uh, if they broke two minutes, uh, like I can remember Miracle Miles, uh, where they used to run against the light if they were running faster than, than two minutes. Uh, I think it's a, f- a fair claim. I never thought I'd see horses at Albion Park breaking 150. Um, you know, I, if I finished broadcasting there 13 years ago, and that was never considered. So you're probably right. In saying that, uh, I see with thoroughbreds a good, a good fast run for 1,200 metres 20 years ago was between one nine and one ten. Now they run between one seven and a half and one eight. Greyhounds as well. So, uh, but I would say yes, you're probably right. Harness racing has been the uh, the, the strongest to evolve. Mm. As you said, the times are the most important thing there. Uh, the drivers now, we've got so many professional young drivers and the sulkies are the other thing that have got to be factored in as well. Mm. They've changed so much in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. So, it's interesting. He's still the horse they've got to beat for the Inter Dominion. There's no question. It, it's, it's in his own backyard. He's going to love the style, the four runs in the 14 days. So he's the horse they've got to beat, but it's been proven. He's not he's not invincible, uh, leap to fame. So, you know, there, there were a few that were probably keen to knock him there, thinking, oh, this, this horse is, you know, getting all the plaudits, but he's not winning the big races. The other big thing to come out of the Victoria Cup now on Saturday night, and this is going to be interesting, and I'm sure a few people will start, you know, crunching some numbers once I raise this. Who's going to be crowned the Australian Horse of the Year for 2023? Leap to Fame's won the Sunshine Sprint. He's won the Rising Sun. Even if he wins the Inter Dominion, does that guarantee him that title of Horse of the Year? Is Catch a Wave right in that mix as well, given that he's won the Chariots of Fire, he's won the Miracle Mile, he beat Home Leap to Fame there on Saturday night. As we know, he's definitely not coming to Queensland for the end of the Minion. So is he is he the horse that everyone's got to beat at this point? Or 
the Smokey and the wild card for this is the Trotter Just Believe. As we know, he's the defending Inter-Dominion champion. He's definitely headed this way. If he wins the Inter-Dominion Trot champ, and he needs to win it to be in this in this conversation, given what he achieved by going uh, to the Northern Hemisphere uh, during the year, is he a little bit of a smoky? So that's the other thing. It's going to be very interesting between now and the end of the year because there's so much at stake, but who's going to be crowned the Harness Horse of the Year for 2023? Yeah, the Inter-Dominion will certainly decide that, I would think. Good on you, Chris. Thanks for your time. Anytime, David. Thank you. Chris Barsby there. Yes, act now at long odds winning for Emma Stewart and Clayton Tonkin. They had a big night winning the, the Derby in the Oaks as well. Well, we came up a little short of the Victoria Cup with Leap to Fame, brave but but beaten. Wasn't the case of the Million Dollar Chase at Wentworth Park on Friday night as we go to the replay. Racing now. Postman Pat only out reasonably. Away fast. Cumbria Kid down on the inside will lead to the first turn from Postman Pat who pushed through. JSJ railed up behind them. They're followed to fourth. Balaurna one hot band at the outside. Next Tinkanorm has ability. Yachi Bale last. Down the back. JSJ getting up on the inside of Cumbria Kid and the Queenslanders hit the lead. They're followed Postman Pat one hot bandit and Balaurna around the turn. JSJ drew two links in front. Cumbria Kid's coming back. JSJ just in front. JSJ for Queensland has won the million dollar chase and beaten Cumbria Kid Postman Pat. One hot bandit, no luck at all. They've followed Yachi Bale, Bella Una has ability and Tinker Norm. The time around 29.70. That is the win of a lifetime. Yes, uh, that was the sixth running of the million dollar chase. John Brash joins me now. John, good morning. David, good morning to you. Good morning, everyone. Doesn't that sound great, David? The Queenslander wins the million-dollar chase. Yeah, exactly. Jay is Jay. And I tell you what, just uh, doing some research yesterday, it wasn't an easy path to get to the final, let alone win it. No, David. Uh, what these greyhounds have to do to qualify for the million-dollar chase is they actually have to go to regional New South Wales to run in heats and final at the regional centres and then they run one, two, three in the regional final. That qualifies them to run in the semi-final at Wentworth Park to grab a one in eight chance of going into the, the final for $1 million. Selena Zamet, the trainer of JSJ and her husband Mick, the greyhound is owned by Selena's mum Lillian Jones and is named after her late father Jeff Jones, they had to qualify through Grafton. I was lucky enough to be there the night that the, the heat of the million-dollar chase was run, and he won that. He lined up in the final the following week from box number one, and he finished fourth, David, and that means he was out of the semi-final. So what do Mick and Selena do? They were thinking about it on the way home. Should we continue on? We can't even run fourth at Grafton. Or do we have another shot, which they run qualifying heats at Wentworth Park one week before the semi-finals. So they decided to put the dog in, in the qualifier at Wentworth Park. They were lucky enough to win that. They won the semi-final and now they've won the final worth $1 million. It was an exciting race. They went to the first turn and, and basically there was there was bother at the first turn and it ended up almost a race of three with the, the one, two and the three. And any one of those three could have won over the last half circuit, but he's a keen railer, Jay, isn't he? Stuck there to the rail and that certainly helped his cause. Yeah, that's where he wants to race. He, he holds the track record at Albion Park. Uh, was previously held by 
his sire, Seneki, and he broke that back in March, and he did that off box number one. He's won the Queensland Derby, won the Golden Ticket earlier in the year, and uh, this is the the next stepping stone, and uh, Michael and Selena have now come away with, with $1 million here. As you say, he railed up down the back after only beginning fairly, he got a run through at the first turn and he just kept rolling and got inside of Cumbria Kid to take the lead and uh, and the race was his. The Zammet name has been a household name in the greyhound industry for many years and, of course, prior to that, their dad, Sam, was uh, a great harness racing man to begin with and then, of course, uh, fell in love with the greyhound code as well. Sam drove the first winner at Albion Park when night racing began, but that name Zammet's so well known. And most importantly, before I let you go, I think you're going to catch up with Mick Salmon very shortly to have a chat with him. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to uh, to get to Mick. He said the phone hasn't stopped since they've got home on uh, on Saturday afternoon and uh, we're lucky enough and, uh, yeah, he's uh, going to give us a bit of his time a little later on in the morning, uh, David. So it'll be interesting to see where the Greyhound heads now. Of course, we've got the uh, Ipswich Cup coming up. The heat's on Thursday week. That race is worth $150,000 this year, the Ipswich Cup. And then you've got the Melbourne Cup Carnival. You've got the Top Gun coming up on November 11. It's worth $100,000. The Melbourne Cup is worth 650000 And then you've got the slot race, the Phoenix, at the Meadows coming up on December 16. And, of course, Racing Queensland have got a slot in that, David. Yeah. And they have a qualifying race here in Brisbane, the Flame, and you have to qualify through that to go through to the Phoenix to represent to Racing Queensland. Or does Mick actually get offered another slot by another slot holder and take that and virtually Queensland could have two runners in the Phoenix come December yeah. 16? So it's a, it's a lot for Mick to think about. So we'll check with Mick and see where the JSJ is off to next. OK, that's not too far away. Good on you, John. Thanks for being part of Press Room this morning. Thanks, David. John Brash joining us here on Press Room. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for that interview with Mick Sam. Congratulations to Mick and Selena and Lillian Jones as well. Let's take a break on Press Room. We've still got plenty coming out your way. Ben Scannon joins us on the other side of the break. You're listening to Press Room with David Fowler on Radio Tab. If it's equine or canine, your one-stop shop is Garrard's Horse and Hound. 13 stores across Australia and New Zealand. Garrard's Horse and Hound stock all the big names and they provide the very best in veterinary services. You can buy the products online, horseandhound.com.au, or there's a, f- a free call number, phone 1-800-060-896, 1-800-060-896. Garrard's Horse and Hound, very loyal supporters of Press Room right from day one. Ben Scannon joins us now. Ben, good morning. Hi, David. How are you? I'm well. Uh, we've known each other a long time, and uh, whether our discussions have been on air or off air, often the subject of Victoria Park has come up, of course, for those um, maybe younger listeners, Victoria Park was a racetrack basically in Adelaide CBD. You could actually walk out of Victoria Park. It might take you 10 minutes to, to walk to the uh, the main city streets. Uh, it closed down in December 2007. Hard to believe it's nearly 16 years ago. It was the topic of conversation during the week, but if you want Victoria Park to come back, uh, you won't like what you're going to hear from Ben now. No, that's right. So, yeah... You're right, it's been something that's been on the radar on and off for a, for a long period of time, ever since Victoria Park was closed, as you said, 16 years ago, which really surprised me. It doesn't feel like that long ago. But, um, yeah, the uh, this is off the back of, I think, Bruce McEvaney did talk about 
um, ways that South Australian racing could be reinvigorated, and one of those was um, the concept of hosting a, like a summer racing series at Victoria Park. Um, Bruce talked about that maybe six months or so ago, maybe a little less time than that. Um, but anyway, Katrina Heldyard, the um, the racing minister here, state racing minister here in South Australia. Um, yeah, she's basically said, look, not going to happen. The government won't support it. Um, so, yeah, let's just, just put that one to bed. It's been a could-it-happen kind of question for a very long time, and the answer has always been the same. It's it's no, unfortunately. So, um, look, I, I really enjoyed Victoria Park and just its proximity to the city, but the reality was that um, South Australian racing couldn't sustain it, couldn't maintain it. Um, the facilities needed a, huge, needed a huge amount of work. Um, there are a lot of challenges with nearby residents in terms of the use of that facility as well. So it's now, there's an old grandstand there. Um, there's a car race that's going to be on there in, um, in a few weeks' time. But in terms of horse racing, um, that bird is well and truly flying. I think that grandstand's heritage listener. But, but I think the, the, the point that the reason we've kept raising it over the last, well, not 16 years, but it's certainly come up uh, on, the, on the radar over the last 10 years, I think the fact that we keep talking about it was probably the wrong decision was made at the time and we rue that decision, or certainly South Australian Racing rue that decision, but it's too far down the track now and, yeah. you know, it all comes back to money as well and I don't think uh, uh, the, the, the Melanaskis Labor government are flush with cash, so and certainly no. at a time of a cost of living crisis, spending money on a new racetrack when there's already more fill there, it would be a very brave government to try and do that. Yeah, that's right. No, the, the reality is that that area has been has been repurposed. There are now wetlands there, mm. um, a lot of different paths. It's used for recre recreational purposes. So yeah, it's it would take a, a huge, huge amount of money to to get it back to a to a reasonable standard for horse racing. You know, hundreds. Bit of, of bias from me here, time. but I was delighted to see uh, Andrew Lewis Gluey win outright by himself his first uh, black type race with air assault on Saturday in the Hill Smith. Yeah, the first, the first of many, no doubt. Um, yeah, as you said, like Andrew's obviously trained, co-trained with Leon McDonald, his father-in-law, for a, for a long period of time. But yeah, he's now standalone him by himself. And air assault did a really good job as well, didn't he? He's a justified gilding out of Elegant Eagle, raced by that famous Harry Perks in those Harry Perks colours. Um, yeah, and he's really dominant on Saturday. He got to the front and Jason Holder rated him beautifully and he just kept on rolling and, and ran away from him, one by, one by about three and a half lengths and looked like he could have actually run by more. He was super strong on the line. So they've got some interesting decisions to make with him now in terms of where he heads. He's only had the eight starts, won a couple of them. The way he raced on Saturday suggests that, look, that, that kind of trip or even further is not going to be an issue for him. Um, look how strong that race was, I'm not too sure at this stage, but yeah, they. I think they'd certainly have to now consider trying to find a race for him, maybe at the back end of the um, the Spring Carnival in Melbourne. I'm not exactly sure what the race would be. I've had a look through the programs and nothing really jumped out to me. Um, but yeah, I'm sure they'll they'll pick the eyes out of it and see if they can find a, a race so they can have a crack at something a little bit stronger than what we saw on Saturday. Lockie Nindorf had an outstanding day on the weekend at, at, at Morfordville. Yeah, he really did. And he's a, he's a really good story, Lockie. Look, I remember him as a as a very young fellow when he was um, just had just joined the Apprentice Academy. He was about 15 years old. He moved out of home. He was living by himself and trying to make forge a career as a jockey and, you know, really likeable young man. And he, um, 
he certainly had a, a very significant amount of success when he when he started off as an apprentice. So much so that he he was lured across the the border to Victoria. And um, look, I think it's fair to say that things in Victoria didn't go quite as as he would have hoped. I think there were certainly some challenges during that period. Um, found it tough to get regular riding on a Saturday and I just think the circumstance of being away from home and it is the, the competitive nature of race in Victoria I think at the stage of his life Lockie found that challenging on occasion but he, he found his way back to South Australia Gordon Richards actually had a chat to him and said hey Lockie why don't you come back here and try to finish off your apprenticeship here so he made the move back and it's yeah he's kind of hadn't, hasn't looked back since then um, outrated his claim and then on Saturday was his, was his, his best day ever in the saddle with the four winners Rode all of them beautifully as well. He's a, you know, he's kind of established himself as one, as one of our, our best jockeys, and no reason why he can't continue to go from strength strength to strength. And who knows, maybe eventually he will find his way back to Victoria and uh, having a crack over there again. He's very talented. He's strong. He's smart. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of things in his favour. I think Blocky Nindorf. One hundred percent. Dan Clark and Lobby McGilvery have got a good team at the moment. They had a double there on Saturday. What's happening with the map? Yeah, do a, do a really nice job with their team, don't they, Dan and Uppy? And, yeah, the map, she was a, a really good winner on Saturday. She dominant, in fact, ran away from them. Um, they've always talked about her as being a, you know, potentially a, a black-type stayer, and she's actually still nominated for the Melbourne Cup. She's way down the, the bottom of the order of entry. I think she's equal, equal 60th, so she would need a lot of things to to change for her to be a chance at a, at a race like the, uh, like the Melbourne Cup. I heard Oki talking after the race on Saturday there's some chance she could head to the Geelong Cup which would obviously provide an avenue into the Melbourne Cup if she happened to be successful in a, in a race like that. Um, if they decide that that's aiming just a little bit too high at this stage of the, of the map's career they could look at a race like the Archer on, on Derby Day um, but she, yeah she's certainly a promising stayer. She's, look she's a million miles off a race like the Melbourne Cup I think at the moment but um it's also one of those things where you think occasionally maybe do you need to strike while the iron's hot? Why don't they have a, have a crack at it while they know the horse is in form? And if she happens to make it, that's fantastic. And if she doesn't, then they've always got next year to think about. For sure and certain. Good on you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, David. Ben Scadden joining us from Adelaide. Um, as many of you would know, we lost the Devonport track in Tasmania for harness and greyhound racing, but there was the, uh, not the promise as such, but a, a new track to be built. Could there be some um, troubled times ahead? Let's find out from Colin McNiff. He joins us now. Colin, good morning. What's the story? Yeah, good morning, David. Well, the cost uh, initially was uh, set around the $18 million mark, but that's blown out to some $38.6 million latest estimates. There has been a 27-hectare parcel of land identified out near the Devonport Airport for this uh, proposed new harness and uh, greyhound facility, and the Trobe Council, uh, in fact, have voted in favour of this uh, of this facility going ahead but the fact that it uh, has blown out by more than 20 million dollars is putting all sorts of pressure we're just speaking about uh, governments don't have much money and certainly like all other governments the tasmanian is in that same boat so if they how they could justify 38.6 million dollars at this stage and probably going to blow out even further than that they have said that uh, they want this track to to be built but to be built for the right price not just any price. So we'll just have to watch this space, uh, as we've spoken about uh, in, in previous months with this development, as to whether or not it's going to get off the ground is uh, is a real concern now. The logical question, uh, or, the, or the, the follow-up to that is, how the hell do they get it so wrong? 
Well, that's uh, amazing, isn't it? Uh, it seems to be the way, doesn't it? Uh, as was the case with the Commonwealth Games in in, in Victoria. Look, I'm not too sure with the, as to why the cost has blown out so much. I know everything seems to be uh, more expensive these days, but yeah, from 18 million up to 38.6 million, perhaps they were a little conservative in their initial estimations. It sounds like it. You had your racing awards night on the weekend, Friday night, was it? Yeah, good night. Last Friday night up in Launceston, uh, horse of the year, the inevitable. I suppose no real surprise there. He, uh, he ran a pretty good race in the two-rack. He was probably gone 50 metres after the start when he was last. He finished seventh. was a pretty good effort. Bellow Bow was the three-year-old of the year. It needs sugar in what wasn't a strong year for two-year-olds was the two-year-old. We also had our Hall of Fame, and one of our work was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, Glenn Fair, who called races uh, in Launceston in the 60s, 70s and early 80s before moving into the managerial side of radio stations and then also served on a few committees uh, racing-wise and and played a major role in getting race broadcasts when uh, we were struggling to get radio broadcasts uh, in southern Tasmania through 7HT, then was the manager there and and played a vital role in getting race broadcasts uh, throughout southern Tasmania. Broodmare of the Year uh, was Tiar, who is the mum of uh, Think About It. So uh, she was standing at, uh, well, she was uh, purchased by Grenville Stud a few years ago for $150,000. Grenville Stud also had uh, West Quest inducted into the Hall of Fame. And just one of the other highlights I thought was we've got a new award called the Raquel Clark Encouragement Award, and that was won by Chloe Wells, who won her first race ride and then shortly afterwards suffered a, a badly broken leg in a race fall at Devonport, was sidelined for a long, long time, but she's back now. And she won that Encouragement Award, the inaugural Raquel Clark Encouragement Award. And speaking of Raquel, uh, she co-hosted the awards night and did a, did a fine job. Good on you, Colin. Thank you for that. Cheers. Thank you. Colin McNiff with us on Press Room this morning. Just one fun fact before we go. Think about it, and I wish I win Quinella the Everest, both side by Cox Plate winners. Think about it by Say You Think, and I wish I win by Sava Beal. Thanks for your company and thanks for your contributions this morning. We've had a, a good show, plenty uh, plenty to t- talk about, and that will be the case certainly over the next few weeks as well. Have a good day. Bye-bye.